Psalm 103, a psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He may known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for a man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And our text this morning is the verses 17 and 18 of the psalm that we just read. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this past Monday, Australia celebrated Anzac Day. For many people, it was just another long weekend, but for others, it was an opportunity to reflect on the sacrifices made by those who have gone before us. As most of you would know, the date for Anzac Day was chosen in connection with the Gallipoli Landing. The Gallipoli Landing was supposed to open up the way to the Black Sea for the Allies in World War I. Instead, this campaign dragged on for eight months at an enormous cost of life. And it was just one part of an awful war. World War I cost an estimated 10 million dead on the battlefield and 20 million people wounded and unprecedented destruction. 
There had never been death and destruction on this scale before. And people looked at that and they said, this should never happen again. This is going to be the war that will end all wars. Well, we know how that turned out. How many wars have there been since then? And how much war do we see now? Look at Ukraine. Every time measures are put in place to avoid war, you have things like that happening. And these are pictures that we see in the news, not from 100 years ago. Pictures from today that you see on the news every morning. Bodies lying in the streets. And it becomes, it makes you numb after a while. You look at that, you look at the pictures, and you forget that these were all people, all individuals who had a life. People with hopes, with dreams, with ambitions, with plans, with desires, with intentions. But now, even their place remembers them no more. At most, their name will be on a memorial somewhere, but for them, life is over. Now, we're not in a wartime situation, thankfully, but we are familiar with death. Tomorrow, many of us hope to attend the funeral of Brother Herman Decker, and many of us have, loved, have lost loved ones in the past. The verses of the psalm are true. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. And that is true of all of us. But this psalm does not leave us there. It says there is something that transcends even life itself, something that transcends time, something that you can hold on to no matter what your circumstances are, and that something is the steadfast love of God, God's love for His people, a love not limited by time, a love that transcends generations, a love that transcends all of our shortcomings, all of our sins, all of our struggles, all of our misplaced desires. And that is the encouragement that this psalm offers to us in the face of death. The encouragement that this psalm offers us also as we prepare ourselves for tomorrow and as we consider the world that we live in, as we also consider perhaps tensions in our own family situation and in our life, this psalm points us to that love of God and tells us to depend on it. It says that you can depend on the Lord's steadfast love. It transcends time and it transcends sin. So our text this morning tells us that the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. And this word translated as steadfast love refers to the covenantal love, the special love that God has for His people. And this love is actually something very unusual. It's unusual because it is motivated entirely by God Himself. You see, for most of us, when we love someone, we expect them to love us back, right? This is how uh, many relationships also um, between couples begin, is because the one loves the other and the other loves the one back again. And if they don't, then the relationship often won't, won't go very far. But God's steadfast love is not like that. His love is different because it comes from within Himself. It doesn't fluctuate. It doesn't depend on how we respond. 
That's not erratic. That's not unpredictable. It is a steady love, which is steady because it comes from within the inter-Trinitarian life of God Himself. The book of Exodus tells us that God's people were slaves in Egypt when He first came to them. And when He first revealed Himself to them, they didn't even know who He was. And they should have known because God had already revealed Himself to the forefathers before then, but many of them had forgotten in the misery and the oppression of their circumstances. And so, there was nothing inherently lovable in them. The initiative to, to begin this relationship with the descendants of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, the initiative to begin this relationship had to come from God. And the initiative to maintain the relationship comes from God as well. This is actually echoed in a very special way in the first half of Psalm 103. Look at verse 6. It says, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel. Well, you think about what that all included. What did it all include? It included the ten plagues, culminating in the death of the firstborn. It included the exodus, it included the crossing of the Red Sea. It included the drowning of Pharaoh's army, one of the greatest military mites in the world of that time. It included the miraculous feedings in the desert. And then these people come to Mount Sinai. God enters into a covenant with them. And he says, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Then he calls Moses up to Mount Sinai to receive the law of the covenant. And what did the people do when Moses was gone? You boys and girls should know this. What did they do? Well, they made a golden calf and they start to worship that. That was their response to the Lord's steadfast love. Now, God would have been fully within his rights to turn his back on his people forever. But he didn't do that because he maintains his relationship with his people. So Moses comes back up the mountain, and he says to the Lord, please show me your glory. This is in Exodus 33, and God does that. He takes Moses, he hides him in a cleft of the rock because no one can see God and live, and then he passes by Moses, and he proclaims his name, his reputation, his character. He says that he is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And if you've paid attention so far, that should be familiar because those very words are echoed in this psalm. Look at verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That, that almost word for word comes straight from that passage in Exodus. So the first half of this psalm contains these echoes of forgiveness, God's forgiveness and His love and um, uh, his desire to maintain the relationship with his people. And the psalm is suggesting that, that God is still like that today, towards all of his people today. So God's love for his people comes from within himself. There's nothing that you can do to earn it. People do try sometimes. They experience something of God's love. They, they get an inkling of how precious it is. And they start to feel insecure because they're afraid of losing God's love. 
So they try to compensate for their remaining sins and weaknesses in their lives by being very disciplined and very strict with themselves and with others. And in and of itself, discipline and strictness doesn't necessarily need to be a bad thing, but, but when it comes from, from this kind of a mindset, then it seems to indicate that these people believe they got into the covenant by grace, but now they need to stay in the covenant by works. The fact is we have no control whatsoever over God's love. There's nothing you can do to make Him love you. There's nothing you can do to make Him keep loving you. But actually knowing this inspires a lot of confidence. It inspires confidence because it means that the steadfast love of God doesn't depend on us. Our text says that the love that God has for His people is from everlasting to everlasting. That means it's always been there and it always will be there. That's something you can depend on no matter what your circumstances are. The psalm says that God remembers that we are dust. We were made from dust. One day we will return to dust. Our days are like grass, says the psalmist. They all look the same. You ever looked at grass before? You can't really tell much of a difference between one blade of grass and another, can you? Especially not when you have a field full of it. And, and the psalm says, look at the church lawn, you look at that grass, those are your days. They all look the same, they pass by quickly. Who pays attention to grass? And it says that that man flourishes like a flower of the field. Well, you've seen flowers here, if you go up to Calberry, for example, when it's in season, you see flowers everywhere, and they're beautiful, but as soon as the sun dries them up, they're gone. And it says, that's us. Our days are like grass. One day, we'll perish, and it happens quickly. And who will still remember us 20 years from now? Maybe 20 years from now, our family will remember us, but what about 50 years from now? What about 100? Do you remember your forefathers from a hundred years ago? Can you name them? Do you know what they thought, what they lived for, what mattered to them, what their life was like? Will it matter where we worked or what we did? Will anyone care? And yet today we're so busy with our routines and our plans and our ambitions and our desires. We've launched Head first into the second term of school and pressure starting to build up again. We barely stop to breathe. And you know what? One day you'll die and all of that frantic activity will cease and how much of it will really matter in the big picture. What does it all add up to in the end? Dust you are. To dust you shall return. The only thing in life that you can really count on is the love of God. The steadfast love of God. If you don't have that, you have nothing. It's an amazing thing to go through life and to know the love of this God. He is so high and so exalted. David says, The Lord, verse 19, has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. Imagine how great He is. All the universe is his dominion. He has a host of mighty heavenly beings who carry out his will. 
And not only that, but He is eternal. He is sovereign, holy, exalted over time and space. The highest superlatives, the most far-reaching words that you could dream up do not contain Him. And yet, says the psalm, He is emotionally and relationally invested in sinners like us. And He calls us His children. Why would He do that? Why would someone like this invest himself in the lives of sinners? Why would he invest himself in the lives of people whose days are like grass, who die off like flowers after spring? There's a sense of marvel in this, in this word, but, in our text. Verse 17, but, the steadfast love of the Lord. You get this description of mankind in verses 15 and 16, and then verse 17 starts with but. And there's marvel in that word. Get these dust-like people with a lifespan of grass, and yet the steadfast love of the Lord is for them. How is this even possible? Well, that word but has the whole gospel packed into it. Because if death really does separate us from God, then the psalm would be tragic. You know, it could end... It could end at verse 16. And that's how many people think about life. And that would be it. It would be tragic. It would be tragic because a marvel of knowing God would end in the grave with nothing else to look forward to. But the gospel is that God's steadfast love transcends all things, even death. The Bible says that death is a punishment for sin. But the Bible also says that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was sent into this world to take away sin. And from that perspective, the sense of awe that this psalm teaches us just increases. You see, Jesus was born as a true human being. He took on a true human nature, a fragile, dust-like nature, born as one of us fragile people, glorified dust, days like grass, brief as wildflowers, in his life and especially in his death, he bore the weight of God's wrath against human sin. And he calls us to have faith in him. What is faith? Well, faith is simply to accept, to come to terms with and to accept what the Bible says about ourselves and about God and live accordingly. When we have faith in him, we can receive forgiveness of sins. When you have forgiveness of sins, then you can legitimately hold on to the Lord's steadfast love, even in the face of death. So what about believers who die? Does the Lord's everlasting love end for them when they take their last breath? The Bible says no. For believers, death is not a punishment for sin. Instead, it is an end to sin. In John 5, verse 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. And when he says life, he means life in the sense that Psalm 103 describes it, life in fellowship with God, life in the sense of enjoying the Lord's steadfast love, life that transcends death, life that transcends our dust-like, grass-like existence. And you might wonder for yourself, how do I know that these things are true, that they're real, 
Well, look at, look at the historical record. Look at what His Word says. God has always dealt with His people in this way. He's always come to them with steadfast love. If you want to see how God deals with individuals, you need to look at how He deals with His people as a whole because it's in the community of faith that we remember what God has done. It is in the community of faith that we pass it on from generation to generation. It's in the community of faith that we learn to fit our lives into this psalm, to apply the words of this psalm to our lives. Because God has dealt with His people like this in the past, with a steadfast love, we know that He will come to us with steadfast love as well. In fact, He came with His love long before we even knew what it was. Most, if not all of us here, were baptized. On the day that we were baptized, God confirmed His covenant promises to us. We didn't know yet what His promises were like. We didn't understand His steadfast love, but He made those promises anyway. And as we grew up, we began to understand what these promises were about, and He stirred in our hearts the desire to respond. He regenerated us. He renewed us. He began the work of sanctification in our lives. And we came to know God and understand and receive Him as the one who forgives, who heals, who redeems, who satisfies. So His promises were made before we could comprehend them, and they remain true even when we fade away. Lately, we've been getting some emails about Fairhaven. We think of our elderly brothers and sisters who are residing there. We know that some of them struggle with Alzheimer's or dementia. And if you've ever seen someone in that condition, you know that people who, who suffer like that eventually lose their reference points in time. It becomes very difficult when you're sick like that and you don't remember where you are or what's going on around you. You stop recognizing the people that come into your room. Well, we're, we're creatures who were so much shaped by time and memory. And when these reference points disappear, then what have we got left? What are we? What still remains for us? Well, the psalm says, the Lord's steadfast love does. In Isaiah 49, verse 15, he says, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on her son of her womb? Even if, even if these may forget, yet I will not forget you. In other words, you would never expect a normal, healthy woman to forget her child. But even if, hypothetically, that was possible, even if it was a thing that parents would forget their children, uh, certainly God would not forget His children. That's the power of His steadfast love. We may forget. We may come to a point in our lives where we even forget our own name. But the Lord does not forget us. And that's really the only thing that matters. That's the power of God's steadfast love. Hold on to that love because it's real. It transcends time and it even transcends sin. That's our second point. There is something really interesting about this text that you may not have thought about before. We're looking at verse 17 here. It parallels God's steadfast love with His righteousness. 
You see, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness is the parallel phrase, the parallel clause, his righteousness to children's children. So you get his steadfast love and his righteousness, and they coexist in the same sentence. They're put beside each other. And that is actually remarkable because normally you would expect these two things to be mutually exclusive. After all, what does righteousness mean? If you're one of my catechism students, you should know this. What is righteousness? Righteousness is conformity to God's moral standard. Righteousness means to be, to, to be up to spec, right? Just like when, when, um, when a roofie builds something according to the building code or an electrician does something according to the electrical code, righteousness is behavior that is according to God's code, which is his law. And God is perfectly righteous, God has perfect moral integrity. That means he acts in complete consistency with his own moral standard, and his standard is perfection. So for God to act in righteousness, you would expect him to judge sin. You would expect him to destroy all covenant breakers, to wipe them off the face of the earth. And the psalmist, King David, certainly confesses sin. Look at verse 3, he he, reveals, he he refers to his iniquity in verse 10. He refers to sins and iniquities again. Verse 12, he refers to his transgressions. So this is a man who has sinned. And when we sing this psalm, we sing this psalm as people who sin as well. So if he, he, if he sinned, how does it make sense for God to show him righteousness? Is this not actually a very dangerous thing to do? You know, think about that. You ask God to show him, to show you righteousness. It's a dangerous thing to do. Righteousness is that God acts consistently with his own moral standard. In other words, his actions correspond to his nature. Essentially, his righteousness means that he is true to himself. But he is also committed to his people, and he will not go back on that. He will not break his word. So how does that work? How can you fit righteousness and steadfast love together? Well, what it means in terms of the covenant, righteousness means that he upholds his side of the relationship with his people. The Bible calls that relationship the covenant. It says that God is always faithful to his covenant promises, and that gives us reassurance. It means that he will never go back on his covenant. He will never go back on his commitment. He will never go back on his promises. He can hold on to his steadfast love. The steadfast love is not something that is tacked on as an afterthought. It's central to his relationship with his people. But it still leaves us with this question. How are we supposed to, how's God supposed to deal with sin? How can he be righteous if he doesn't deal with sin? But he has dealt with it. And the psalmist knew this. Because the law of God was not just the Ten Commandments. It also included all of the ceremonial regulations of the Old Testament, including the regulations pertaining to sacrifice, for example, also sacrifices for sin. So when you sinned, you confessed your sin and you brought an animal to be sacrificed, and God accepted that. So, and he forgave you. So, so the psalmist saw God's righteousness 
that sin leads to death, he saw that depicted in every animal sacrifice that was made in the temple. And all of those sacrifices all pointed together to the one great sacrifice of the Son of God himself, Jesus Christ. As it says in Isaiah 53 verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So God has fulfilled his righteousness. He counted the sins of his people against Christ and he fully punished him for it. And that's how you can have both of these things, God's righteousness and his steadfast love to sinners. And that's why faith in Christ, through faith in Christ, that's really the only way that you can hold on to the Lord's steadfast love because then it even transcends your sin. And from that perspective, we also know how to understand the last part of this text. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children. It says that the Lord's steadfast love is for those who keep His covenant. Does that mean that it still depends on us in the end? And the answer to that is no. As we've already seen, the relationship has begun and it is maintained by God. His commitment came before us, and it will outlast us. So whatever Elsa says, it cannot say that God's steadfast love is only for his children when they behave. That's not what it means. But what it does mean is that if our relationship with God is genuine, then it has to go both ways, doesn't it? His steadfast love is not conditional on our performance, But if we really are his children, then we will also fear him. We will treat him with respect. We will show him reverence. We will do that by keeping his commandments as he tells us to do. That's true reverence. To hold on to the Lord's steadfast love in no way suggests that his love depends on you because that love will outlast everything, including you. But it does require your response To hold on to the Lord means that you love Him and that you obey Him. To not remember His commandments means that you break them. Those who You get those who remember to do His commandments and those who do not remember to do them. And to not remember doesn't just mean that you forgot. It means that you break His commandments. If you live in the time frame of the here and now, if you ignore His steadfast love, then how can you derive any kind of comfort from it? How can you have any kind of claim on it? That's why it's so important for us to take God's word seriously, especially as God's people, part of God's New Testament church. This God, this compassionate and gracious God, has loved us with a steadfast love. How then could we ever dare to ignore that and to waste our time on frivolous and mindless pursuits? Every part of our life is to be lived in awe, whether we're at work or at play. We belong to God. Every time that you pick up a spanner from the tray, every time that you drink a beer, every time that you get into your ute or that you sit down behind a computer or that you load your dishwasher, you should be in awe that you are loved by the steadfast love of this God. You can depend on that love, even when things are not going well in your life even when you're caught in the day-to-day grind of a boring job 
or you're constantly visiting the doctor, or you have children that you're worried about. You remember the promise of our text. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him, and His righteousness to His children's children, to those who keep His covenants and remember to do His commandments. That's true no matter where you are, no matter what happens to you. It's in living that you begin to understand what this actually means. So depend on the Lord's steadfast love. Fear Him. Keep His covenant. Obey His commandments. And then you will know Him. Amen.